a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I really believe that within every community, there's a group of people who want to help, but feel like they don't know how. Be willing to ask questions, be willing to speak, and be willing to find your role. And that worked in our case. It continues to work. From KSL Podcasts, I'm Andrea Smartin, host of Stranger Becomes Neighbor. In this week's bonus episode, we talk to one of the founders of an organization in Virginia called the Blacksburg Refugee Partnership. We heard a little about this organization in episode six of the podcast, when volunteers there helped Seema, a veteran of the Afghan female tactical platoon. When I met Seema in Utah, she was trying to figure out how to pay her bills, and she was stressed about her future in this country. But in Blacksburg, the organization paid her rent and childcare, allowing her to attend intensive English classes offered at nearby Virginia Tech University. After living in this small town for just six months, she told me she and her young son were happy, surrounded by other FTPs in a supportive community. I wanted to know more about why this program, run entirely by volunteers, seemed to be so effective at helping SEMA and others. Scott Bailey co-founded the Blacksburg Refugee Partnership in 2016 during the Syrian refugee crisis. At the time, he and the other volunteers didn't have any experience or expertise with refugees, but they knew they had to do something. Scott, you're a scientist, a professor at Virginia Tech in space science and engineering. How does a person like you end up co-founding and running a refugee organization? How did this begin? Take me back to that first conversation that started it. To me, it doesn't feel that strange to be a scientist doing this, but maybe it sounds that way. It was church with a pastor that I'm close to and another close friend talking about what's going on in the world and and problems we see and wishing we could do more. And the timing of this, these conversations was about the time the Syrian war was in the news the most. We just believed that was something we could do, that we could help. And next thing you know, we were an organization up and running. As the need became obvious to us, people volunteered to join us. And donors, in particular, an organization called the Secular Society said, we want to help you help some of these families. And so in the course of a few months, we went from one to two to four to seven families that we were supporting, all grassroots, all, you know, neighbors coming together to decide we're going to help these families. So in the second wave after Afghanistan, we took on 10 families like that. That was a huge change in a short time for us. That was bigger than anything we had done in the past. But all the partnerships were there and the people just stood up. Everybody said, we're going to do it. Yeah, I wonder when the evacuation of Afghanistan happened, about 80,000 Afghans were coming to the U.S. What what was that conversation like for your group? So you had this organization established. What was that conversation like? Uh, It's fascinating. So you have to remember, we we didn't see this coming. So 
we were trying to figure out what was our next phase just as we're literally wondering what that, and we started thinking about asylum seekers and working with people coming in the Southern border, Afghanistan hit. And as soon as that became apparent that it was coming, the leader of the secular society came and said, Hey, a lot of people, a lot of women are going to lose their education. If you can get them here and signed up, we will provide the scholarships to back you up. And so we instantly started making calls and trying to find which group we could get attached with that led to the female tactical platoon. And as soon as people started hearing those stories, they lined up, they volunteered to, to work with them. The, the next step became obvious. And amazingly, the people with the skill sets came to us. We didn't have to go to them and said they wanted to help. And we transformed literally in a couple of months as an organization, but it was because of the people who rose their hand. Yeah, you ended up taking in Seema, who's featured in our podcast a member of the Afghan female tactical platoon, the FTPs that assisted U.S. Special Forces. So she moved from Utah to be in your program. And there were already several FTPs working with the Blacksburg Refugee Partnership. What do you think those unique needs are? That's a complicated question. Remember, everybody who comes here went through something difficult, something very difficult. Um, They lost everything. They lost their home. They're no longer with their families. They're still in communication with their families. We all have cell phones, right? Even in Afghanistan. So they know what their families are going through while they're here. And everybody here, whether it's true or not, are perceived to be right in some really awesome situation. They're safe, right? They have a roof over their head. So there's a a sort of survivor's guilt that goes on. I would argue that that effect is amplified for the members of the female tactical platoon because When they were in Afghanistan, they had a very unique identity. Female soldiers in the Afghan culture, that's a very special thing. They were elite female soldiers in the Afghan culture. There's a status with that, and they lost all of that. And every day, they're in contact with family back home who are not just struggling. They might be struggling because their family member left, their soldier family member. The Taliban doesn't like those female soldiers or any soldiers. So... In some cases, their family being persecuted at home because of who these FTPs are. And the women have to deal with all of that. And at the same time, you got to learn English and you got to go to school and maybe have a job. You have to keep moving. We, We can't give them a life where they're not moving forward. So they're dealing with all of that at once. I think the problems are amplified for the FTPs, but I don't want to describe them as needy people. These are some of the toughest people I've ever met, right? They're incredibly strong and resilient. I would like to think we make their lives easier, but they would survive independent of us. I have no doubt of that. They're phenomenal people, but they have a lot on their shoulders. So Seema had friends and people trying to help her in Utah, but they told me they were concerned that she was isolated and and stressed, the extreme amount of stress she was bearing. And she told me when I talked to her that she was much happier in Blacksburg with the other FTPs around her, having all the support that the partnership provides. What do you think are the important elements to being that community that the FTPs and other refugees need? Uh, First, I'm happy she said that. That means a lot that she feels that way. You know, you know, I'm going to be biased as I answer that question, right? So I, I definitely believe all the people I work with that form BRP are special people. That's SEMA. That's her SEMA's colleagues. And that's the, the people who volunteer. I think they're all special and incredible people. I would argue that 
yeah, we think about helping them. We think of ourselves as sort of helpers, but I like the word partner better. We have respect for them. We don't see them as people who are needy. They're people we respect and are even inspired by. And so we, we treat them that way. Yes, we're trying to make their life easier, but it's a partnership where they can do things on their own. We have them do them on their own, but we're kind of side by side with them, if that makes sense. We set as a goal for them to be our neighbors, right? Right. We say that our work is done when they have all the same problems we do and we're just hanging out with them as neighbors. There's never some intention to go away, right? It's, it's, it's sort of a, a permanent thing. And I just feel like that works for a lot of people. It works for a lot of our volunteers and it works for a lot of the families we support. It's not that there's never problems. There definitely are problems, but we solve them together. And I, I think you can't underestimate the amount of inspiration we feel as we work with these people. It's a, there's a lot of mutual respect, a lot of that. And that helps when you have love and respect and a common goal, right? Things can really just come together if you let it. Have you had any moments lately where you thought, oh, this is really working. This is happening. <laughs> uh, you'd be amazed how many, right? Because th- th- this group, th- they celebrate every milestone, right? The end of a semester, a holiday, somebody's birthday. And I get to go to a, at least a lot of that stuff. And it's not that we sit back and have a conversation about how well it's working. It's kind of like, and look, you get, you got to look from somebody as you acknowledge, right? What we're celebrating as you acknowledge the progress. And you can just see it in their eye, this, this joy, right? For why we're celebrating. It happens all the time. And I sense that that people feel they're progressing. And I have to tell you, one of the absolute coolest things about this work is when the families come, say Seema is a good example, right? When she came, her English was not that great, right? She, she spoke some, but she had a lot to learn. She's been in intensive English at a group called Language and Culture Institute with Virginia Tech. Great group, by the way, another key partner of, of ours. So the English improves. So their ability to express themselves and their willingness and desire to express themselves increases with time. So when they want to tell you that they feel progress or they're proud of something that just happened, their ability to do that keeps getting better and better. And so those moments I'm describing get more and more impactful, more and more emotional with time because not only are they expressing that pride, they're showing it, right? It's, It's a part of the fabric of what they're doing in that moment. It's just a beautiful thing. I don't have a good way to describe it. I apologize for my ineloquence, but um, it's an incredible thing. You, you totally get the feeling it's working. And that just supports, as I'm saying, the, the mutual inspiration that goes on. So in the podcast, several people who've befriended and helped the arrivals from Afghanistan ran up against the limits of what they could do as individuals when it came to certain aspects of this experience, like the citizenship status or reuniting families. There was only so much they could do. So then we see some of them start to get politically active. Has that happened for you or for other people involved in the Blacksburg Refugee Partnership? I think most of us started out politically active. So there was some of that. The the problem you're referring to coming up against the limitations, that does happen. And, you know, we have partners that you know about, say, called the Sisters of Service. Um, And with them, we those partnerships were able to help us. And Almost everything we've been able to find a partnership, be it healthcare or, or education or whatever, there are groups out there that want to help. And if we've been persistent, stuff we couldn't do, we found somebody could help with. But problem you're talking about is an incredibly real one because the, the first thing you learn 
And we go through this every time we get a new family, right? In the beginning, it's all great. You're getting people in school. You're getting them working. You're getting them uh, into a home. And the home is beautiful. People donate furniture. And it's it's wonderful. And then in two weeks, right, all that is sort of over. And now you're starting to, you go to pick them up to take them to a class. And they tell you that, that the Taliban came and visited my father's house last night and did something terrible or said something terrible. How do you help them with that? How do you help them when they're saying that and you're saying, oh, I'm so sorry. Class starts in 10 minutes, right? You know, you quickly realize that you are helping them with some important problems. But to be honest, the majority of what they're dealing with, you cannot help them with. And that's why I think the help part of this is is not the the biggest deal. Um, We do sort of help them, but I... They, they would they would get themselves in school on their own without us. That would all work out. I think what really matters is that we're partners with them. And because it's a loving, respectful relationship, they do at some level, they can share that, at least say what's going on with them and feel like they have some support that they're not dealing with alone. This doesn't take away the pain. I'm not pretending that at all. But I think this is one way we succeed is that at least they know that people care. They know that when they're here working towards their education and people are supporting them with their education, they're doing what their family back home wants for them. And that's at least one part of helping them get through each day. I don't want to minimize the pain they go through. I don't want to act like we're saviors or anything like that. We're not. Um, it's just a very hard thing. And I think it's hard for the volunteers because they want to do more. It's hard for the families because they got to bear with this. But I do think we come up with the best possible support system, if that makes sense. And you said that you were already kind of politically engaged and involved from the beginning. Are there certain things you're doing now to try to advocate for this community? We all certainly advocate for the uh, Afghan um, Adjustment Act and and things like that. But, you know, this is another, it's a really great thing. And here I got to give credit to the members of the Sisters of Service. I'm sure you know, and if you've Met Rebecca Edmondson, right? A mm-hmm. truly yep. amazing person. She's in bonus episode, the second bonus episode that we put well, out. Yep. She <laughs> should definitely, she's definitely warrants uh, an episode. I would totally support that. Everything I said, right? A lot of it I learned from her, right? That what their experience is, is this loss of identity. Well, she doesn't take that line down, right? She, right, helps the FTPs wherever they are, be engaged in this process, advocating for themselves. They have been to D.C., Several times they have met with senators and congressmen and tried to lobby them for the Afghan Adjustment Act and other things. They've been involved with protests and marches and panels and things like that. So that is one, it's the advocacy for their case and the case of their comrades. But two, it's telling them they're important, that they still have a role to play right in, you know, the future of their country and what happens to their people. It's a hugely important, positive thing. So When you ask me about stuff we do for advocacy, I I could tell you about letters we write and stuff like that. It doesn't touch what Rebecca is doing with the the FTPs. And I think all my friends in BRP would just say that we're in awe of that and see it as super important. So where do we fit in? I think the best thing we do is clear the path, right? Help them miss a little bit of school, not too much, right? Help with childcare or something like that while they go take part in in some of these things in Washington, D.C. I think... That is one of the best ways that this group gets supported. A big fan of it. 
So for those interested in doing something like you're doing in their own communities, do you have any advice? What what elements have to be in place for this to work? I really believe that within every community, there's a group of people, an army of people who want to help, but feel like they don't know how, don't know how to take that first step. And really the only quality I can give us as we put things together and, you know, I said there were three of us, it quickly became something like eight. And, and we reached out to all the people we knew and it became more people. I think there's a lot of people out there that are just waiting to be reached, that want to see that group who says, you're welcome. You know as much as we do and we're going to figure it out together and come join us. Be willing to ask questions, be willing to speak and be willing to find your role. But otherwise, you don't need any special qualities or anything like that. And that worked in our case. It continues to work. When you think about yourself, like, Before you started all of this, has this done anything for you to sort of change your life? Absolutely. And and here, again, I have to give some credit to Rebecca and the Sisters of Service is, uh, you you know, and I think all of us, we want to make a difference. We see these problems and we want to be a part of the solution. And they all seem so far away, right? Really far away. Um, When you start working families like this, it brings it closer. You feel like you are a part of the solution. And if you keep at it, at least for me, I found that the confidence to do more grows and grows. And one of the biggest steps was when we started working with the Sisters of Service because they were there. They were fighting the war, right? To me, they're on this, you know, I have just immense amount of respect for them. And you start meeting other people that they introduce you to, the, the people that, that uh, I don't know, also support the FTPs, but on a national scale and things like that, other donors. Um, people who make policy decisions, people in the military, documentary people, people like yourself who make podcasts. All of that, right, leads to a confidence that, wow, there, there is a difference, right? We don't have to be so distant from all these problems, right? We can be helpers. Seeing the FTPs go up there and, and, and talk to senators, it's like, you know, I feel like I'm a part of something. Even if it's them doing the talking, I'm a part of something that's making a difference, And I love that. It's a confidence I didn't have before. Um, And I'm curious to see how all this evolves. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to to speak this way. And I'm really happy that you're you're highlighting the, the FTPs. I think they're a phenomenally special group of people that deserve more recognition. And, you know, I'm always feeling nervous talking about helping them. What I have for them is love and tons of respect. They're, they're some tough people, but also great fun to get to know. For information about the all-volunteer organization co-founded by Scott Bailey, visit BlacksburgRefugeePartnership.org. This bonus episode was produced by me, Andrea Smartin, and Nina Ernest. Mixing by Trent Sell. Cheryl Worsley is our executive producer. Thanks for subscribing to Bonus Content. It helps fund our work on more podcasts like this. If you could also give us a rating and write a review, it will help more people discover the show. And if you like us, tell your friends. For more on Stranger Becomes Neighbor, please visit our website, strangerbecomesneighbor.com. Thanks for listening. Stranger Becomes Neighbor is a production of KSL Podcasts.